Well, welcome to Elgin Movie Watchers Podcast. I'm Chuck Slatkin. I'm here with my co-host, Steve Gould. Hey, Steve. How's yeah. it going? Hiya, hiya. Glad to be back and uh, kicking. That's it. We're alive and kicking. That 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 used to be our stage name, but uh, we didn't go very far. Yeah. So this week on Elgin Movie Watchers Podcast, I think we're going to... We're not going to have any guests this week, and I think we're going to try and... No guests? I'm leaving. ...touch base and catch up a little bit with some of the stuff that maybe we you know, talked about in some of the uh, earlier episodes. Kind of like look for some kind of a connection, balance between the Elgin Theater time and the uh, movie watchers time. So... Uh, yeah. Well, I tell you, Chuck, we were always out there. I mean, how many, uh, how many of our guests have complimented us on... The fact that, you know, we've got French Tuesdays, Italian Wednesdays, Japanese Thursdays, and, and uh, all of the uh, silent movies. And and that's great. And then the counterculture stuff like uh, The Harder They Come, Pink Flamingos, El Topo. But, you know, there was a lot more that we were doing. And maybe we shouldn't have been, but we did. And uh, I just... Remember, look, looking back at the history of some of the stuff, I mean, like even John Waters talked about the fact, you know, when he was a, a young filmmaker starting, that the two brothers that we were instrumental in showing the infamous Thundercrack back in 65, they had a film called Sins of the Fleshapods which was about, oh, lazy ass uh, humans that, you know, a million years uh, from now, the uh, robots took over and stuff. That was so influential in John Waters deciding to start making films and laid the groundwork for some of the weird stuff that he did even before Pink Flamingos. Definitely. You got a lot of that cross-pollination going there. I mean, if you look at the Elgin and you say, oh, well, they showed this and they were counterculture, a lot of strange stuff. And we even did that during Movie Watch. I mean, I think we were probably, uh, besides being one of the uh, first true shows on uh, cable that highlighted uh, movies. The first. Uh, the first, yeah. And But we did other things there that were incredible. I mean... There was a sequence. Now I know I'm uh, talking about my uh, my wife of many years, who was the uh, who was the interviewer. But we had a man called Mike Finley, who sadly was uh, killed in the in that helicopter crash at the Pan Am building. But he was a uh, phenomenal innovator when it came to 3D and how it would have worked. He had an incredible uh, lens and things that would you know. And we had a wonderful interview where he described in detail for our viewers on Movie Watch the history of 3D and how it worked and why you got headaches with the red and green glasses and all of that stuff. We had that. We had actually one of the first uh, reviews of hardcore movies on uh, Movie Watch. And I mean, we were doing that also with the Elgin. We showed real cockamamie stuff that people, you know, and say, what the hell is this? 
That's true. We didn't have boundaries, or we didn't feel all that that's inappropriate for us to show, or it's not worth, you know, trying to see if there was an audience. We weren't the Dan Talberts or the Ursula Lewises. It wasn't the Salia. It wasn't the New Yorker. As you say, we really uh, stretched the boundary. Well, we were uh, further downtown. Not just physically. But before we go on, I want to mention something, because I don't remember if we, 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 we talked about the, uh, the death of Bob Downey Sr., that he died recently. Because, again, he's someone also who was a connection between the Elgin, where in, uh, I think it was in 1974, we may have done the first <clears throat> Bob Downey Sr. film festival, but he was also a guest on movie watch that's right and and it would be great if we could you know maybe find some of that uh video to show but there was that uh you know connection between what we were doing at the elgin and what we you know tried to do and and touch upon in movie watch i mean that was something we tried i don't know how many other quote commercial theaters or you know maybe some places that were more uh off the mainstream, but we combined both. We combined both the commercial and the art and also, you know, far out stuff and stuff out of the ordinary. And I think that's, you know, when we really tried to, uh, for younger people, people who didn't go to the Elgin, whatever, try to capture that uh, atmosphere that existed there where anything could be tried and, and everything could be tried and that things were always happening, that we, we the physical plant itself, 600-seat theater with the balcony and the projection booth and the stage, I mean, there were no limitations to, 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 to what we could try or would try and uh like the men's room <laughs> well that was speak for yourself young man yeah but uh, uh but it, it 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 worked and uh it was it was just an exciting you know place to be around not just for us who you know working there and trying to bring things about but people who would come there re regularly some of whom have you know already talked on earlier episodes of this but you know the memories come back and, and remembering stuff and that you know the things that we tried some of whom bombed some were successful some of them did well enough to, to you know to bring back again and i guess what we're trying to accomplish here i know looking at the otto preminger interview on movie watch i mean he was a pretty uh, mainstream establishment personality who yeah. director who you know came to the interview I mean, it's true he was pushing his book, but uh, I think... Yeah, we, and the, we, only t the only thing he got pissed off is when he called it uh, an industry. <laughs> this is not an industry. <laughs> this is a profession. But I was going to say for some of our younger listeners, because they might be saying, what's the big deal? You know, if I want to see something, I can go online, find it, or, you know, whether it's on Prime or Apple TV. But in the days, if you had a friend who... Uh, saw a Bob Downey film, let's say uh, Grease's Palace. Right. And the guy starts talking about it. And he says, you know what you should really see is also uh, Putney Swope. And also there's a great movie, Pound, you know, which was humans playing dogs in a dog pound. Right. And you couldn't necessarily, you'd have to kind of wait, I guess, until you hope that a, a movie theater would uh, 
pick it up as a co-feature. And that's why we would try things like having a festival of uh, Bob Downey's films, like we did with uh, uh, Bob Ravelson. And uh, when we showed uh, Head, you know, I mean, those were opportunities so that people could, you know, not have to wait. You know, it was like uh, Elgin was uh, a streaming service, as it were. Well, we tried to, you know, we had the ideas. And if it was possible, either the availability physically of getting the prints, the ability to, uh, you know, if they were available to, to book them and if we could afford them, we, we, we'd, give it a, we'd give it a try. Was, you know, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work. But, you know, the more underground Bob Downey movies, we combined them on a double bill with the more uh, commercial ones of his. And we, uh, you know, played them for a couple of days, you know, and at least the people who wanted to see it and were learned about it had the opportunity to see it. Sometimes we'd be hitting on something that would really draw people to see it. And then other times we were just maybe getting the few who were, you know, wanted to, a lot of it we didn't know because, you know, some of it, most of it, there wasn't a previous track record of how do you play this in, in the Elgin. But for the movie watch situation, once we got ourselves established and was helped that we were in the, um, the Automation House studio, which for the time was really a first-rate studio, Yep, we, we 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 were we were booking you know significant guests you know from uh, I remember watching the uh, something that we shot uh, with me and Deborah at the pier you know signing off from the for the first season of uh, of Movie Watch where it concludes with Deborah turning around with a fishing rod and going fishing in the water. But it's just, you know, as we were thanking people, we knew, you know, we thanked the, you know, the movie companies and the PR firms and whatever that really, you know, made a movie watch successful because it was one, the way we presented ourselves. We wanted to be, you know, serious in terms of what we were doing and treating movies, films seriously in an entertaining manner. And to do it, you know, as a, uh, like a video magazine. This is as common as anything now, but at the time, it was innovative. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was really. I mean, we had uh, we had that balance too. I mean, we had uh, our infamous buddy Andrew Mikowski with the Cinema City, doing the old films, foreign films, this and that, and plugging that. But we also offered such things as you know, it was really hard for uh, documentary filmmakers in those days to get any traction television wise. And I remember we had a very insightful interview with Barbara Koppel, who did Harlan County, USA. I mean, that was, uh, that was great for people who, you know, saying, oh, I wish they'd do something on document. We did that. And also on the business of what's happening. Here, everybody's talking about HBO, HBO Max. Back you know, in the uh, mid 70s, 75, 76, you know, home box office, they were just starting to cook. And we had on, uh, I think, what was his name? Greg Cascanti and uh, Seth Cate, who were the vice presidents and spearheads for what home box office was trying to do. We wanted to let people know what was going to happen. 
Right, and and we try to you know balance out the, the programs. Actually, you know, accessibility to uh, guests. We had you know limited access to the studio. Some things, if we can only do it on, on with a you know video camera and get uh, a guest at uh, you know a hotel or something, if that was what was available, covering the events. And and as we did it, we, you know we we got better at it. We understood. Uh, what was the way to approach things, a better way to do it, the length or whatever of, of a particular interview. But, you know, again, it's hard, you know, we're talking about, you know, 40, 45 years ago, it's really hard to necessarily remember stuff as we're beginning, you know, to watch things as we've been able to, you know, digitize a significant amount of the video. And hopefully we'll be able to be showing that eventually to uh, our, our listeners who can become viewers and see, you know some of what we're, we're talking about. It's it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a it's amazing amazing footage and uh, talking of, on the first the studio uh, version of movie watch from Automation House and Professor Irwin Corey was was the guest. You know you listen to it over and over again and realize you know it, it's funny and it's outrageous, but it also he, he had a lot of you know perception there and he definitely had the insight into movies that you know it, he worked as a guest you know it was uh and, he was uh, working i didn't know that oh yeah he, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he worked he worked and i think we took them to dinner afterwards but, yeah hope he dusted off that frock coat of his <laughs> but, yeah, yeah was, no i mean those kind of things uh yeah you look back at that and you say wow i mean also that was the case even with the elgin now people would say what the hell we 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 uh, took as a whim because we were always thinking of the next uh, midnight show. There was a guy who actually lived to be close to ninety, who was kind of like a star of uh, adult cinema. He never really made uh, porno films, but he did make adult films, and that was uh, uh, David Friedman. And now we picked up just as a right. quick thing for a midnight show because, well, it, it starred at the time Connie Mason, who was a playmate, a thing called Blood Feast, because we thought maybe that could work. And we showed, we showed that. And uh, that's where You're I get my. Fuad Ramsey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuad, Fuad Ramsey. Yeah, where well, he, he was stuffing a woman in a pizza oven. Yeah. I'll never forget that one. Uh, but we also, because of that, made contacts with him. And we did have a New York opening of one of his films, which was for him a big budget, almost Technicolor production. Uh, that was uh, TNA, which means in the biz, tits and ass, a thing called The Erotic Adventures of Zorro, which oh, came yeah. out in 72. <laughs> it played first run at the Elgin. <laughs> I mean, maybe I should have played second run, but uh, played first run at the Elgin. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we were doing back then, you know, talking about John Waters and the counterculture. There's somebody who's dead and gone now, but she was uh, one of the first uh, trans, I would say. And that was Holly Woodlong. And oh, yeah. she, she starred in a movie called Scarecrow in a Garden of Cucumbers, which actually is from... Uh, a biblical section, I think, in the book of Jeremiah. But she, uh, I mean, uh, the guy who did that was a young kind of wild guy, Robert Kaplan, and he wound up with having a partner. I forget the partner's first name, but it was Cohen. They had a, a, a film company called Masada Films, 
and they did try to release some, uh, you know, first run movies and stuff, but uh, we took them at their word and we did a special showing, which I think someone here might have emceed uh, a showing starring Terry Hall as a nymphomaniac mermaid going after naked people in the water. And the movie was called Gums. <laughs> but I mean, those, uh, those are things where you look back and say, what the hell? But hey, you know, if you don't run something up the flagpole, you don't know if it'll fly. So I do it again. And uh, as I said, with the uh, Kucha brothers, yeah, we did Thundercrack. That was a 1975 film, Thundercrack. And now uh, maybe that wasn't the film that inspired John Waters, but those filmmakers did. So, you know, all of this stuff, I think, uh, really adds up. And I don't know if you remember, I'm going to pull this one out. Wait um, a minute now. Yeah, I'm going to pull <laughs> this one out. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy who actually became a fairly big gun in the uh, industry distribution, Rush Schwartz. Oh, and uh, we wound up talking to Rush Schwartz about something. And this was a film from like 1969. And it was... Uh, like the English title Blind Beast or something. And it was a uh, Japanese film. And he said, could you do something with it? And uh, maybe you can give it a different title. So we screened it and it was about this blind sculptor who lived with his demented mother and they kidnapped a model. And uh, he had all these weird statues in his warehouse that they lived in. And uh, we decided to open the film at the Elgin and call it Warehouse. I don't know if you recall Oh, that, yes, but... yes. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. Blind Fields. Blind Fields, right. And uh, and that became, a, uh, in Japan, a cult classic. Yes. But it was, <laughs> I would have to say it was probably one of the most extreme movies we showed at the Elgin. Oh, yeah. Warehouse. Oh, yeah. It was... Yeah. Uh, Slightly yeah. violent. Slightly, yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I came upon something that I was looking at. I don't know if it's appropriate to talk about. But we got a, Go a push a, the envelope. A letter in '77. This was after the Elgin, but when the movie watch was still going strong. Alan Rudolph, the director, writer, who's still active today. I mean, still working yes. in the industry. Yes. So he had, he had a, a appeared on. Uh, Movie Watch. Movie Watch. I, I don't know if it was Welcome to L.A. He was pushing at the time, or whatever it was. But he, you know, afterwards, you know, I reached Did, out. Didn't he, uh, Chuck? Just me uh, uh, interject. Was he a, a young, the young guy that had a, I don't know, some kind of association with uh, Altman? Yes, yes. He started yeah. as a, he, Altman was, I think, his first producer and got him started in directing. He'd written for. Altman and so you know he tried after get someone on say you know say to them hey you know if you might want to write a little something just about you know movie watch we could help use it or whatever so I came upon this letter that was written in September 25th 1977 uh, from Alan Rudolph signed very truly yours and it reads as follows uh, dear Chuck and gang Avoided responding to your letter in hopes you guys would disappear. But every time I have a bad dream, it takes place in the last century. 
So I decided <laughs> that like most ghosts, you do exist. My next film will not be the next film I thought I would be when we discussed it after my last film. However, my next film will be my last film before the next film we discussed after my next film becomes the last one. A lot of drugs in those days. Of yeah. course, I'm hoping that there will be the next film and no last ones. It is not that Bob and I were doing a play in New York. That was Bob, meaning Altman and Alan Nichols. But even that isn't true because it's not going to happen. But I'm working with Bob on my next film, It's the Above, and it's called Remember My Name and stars Geraldine Chaplin. More on that later. Sorry, but I'll have to decline the grand prize because that would put me in a lower tax bracket and would subject me to ridicule from my peer. I only know of one other filmmaker. But you may take your grand prize and insert it in the nearest opening with my blessing. <laughs> as per your request you guys are great and i'm pleased with your work yours truly alan rudolph is he related to evan costello <laughs> <laughs> i don't know but uh, it's one of those uh, things that managed to uh, survive for 43 years that letter sounded like uh a 1970s version of Ishkabibble. <laughs> that's what happens. Or, or that's what happened. I hope the listeners to this episode can understand whether we were talking about the Elgin, whether we were talking about Movie Watch, that we were always trying to push the envelope. We wanted to cover what we thought uh, our our patrons at the Elgin or our viewers of Movie Watch would be interested in, whether it was something new in technology or in the business of cinema or at the Elgin, some cockamamie film that never got a chance of showing or such a short showing that we could show it and let them see it. Because that's what it was all about for, uh, and why you and I tried to do that. Well, we wanted to keep the theater open. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, well, that's... Uh, and hopefully we would find things that people, you know, enjoyed and would come out in numbers because, as, you know, right. I mentioned earlier, we were not a, a non-profit. We needed to uh, right. make the thing work and, and, and try the best we can. And uh, I remember seeing when I saw Blood Feast on 42nd Street many years ago, so long before... Uh, yeah. And it ended up being part of the Elgin Fair. Yeah, that's probably what uh, turned your mind. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, also uh, with Movie Watch, I mean, people just, I, I don't think nowadays can understand because they, they click on YouTube and they can see what they want. But, you know, this was, uh, we used to have guys that were our cameramen getting hernias going around doing remotes because the camera was so big. Well, that was true. But, you know, we did, we did the best we could under, under, the, under the circumstances. And we, you know, had some kind of uh, people who cared about movies, be it at the Elgin or on Elgin or on Movie Watch, they, they, they appreciated what we were, were trying to do. And sometimes, you know, what we did actually do 
How come they didn't send money? Well, so I I just, again, looking through all these correspondence that we were either too smart or too stupid to throw away. Here's something from the film critic Walter Spencer, written to uh, the Elgin in in, in 1974. Spencer uh, was actually the film critic for WOR Radio, AM Radio. Which AM radio. Was, a, was a major uh, radio station that had, at that time, they had like a news staff and he was their, their critic. So it's just, again, I haven't read this before, so I don't know what he's saying. He says, thanks for the note. I'm happy to mention the Elgin whenever I have a chance, particularly the things such as your Sunday dance films, which might be of interest to a lot of our listeners. and they might not hear about it any other way. By the way, I always enjoy the Elgin Marble. Wow. As for Valerie, which I guess was the film Valerie and her Week of Wonders. Wonders, yeah. uh, uh, Yeah, I'm tied up here at the station during the afternoon and won't be able to make any of the screenings. However, I promise to come see it at the theater in the evening within a day or two after it opens. And you know, establishing uh, relationships, relationships with, 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 with film critics. Yeah. And people who. Uh, well, that was you. Report on, on events, you know, that trying to get the word out because, you know, our advertising budget, while it was to some extent consistent, we had. Uh, our Consistently little, low. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we had our little Sunday Times ad that could barely be seen and uh, and an ad in the village voice was basically what our uh, standard advertising was uh, yep so people uh who knew of the elgin wanted to check the films knew where to look but in terms of reaching out to people who uh you know weren't aware of the theater or whatever it's not like we were getting any kind of uh you know major advertising so we had to look for innovative ways of you know getting the word out and trying to have the you know theater uh, uh, be known and, and seem uh, appealing to people. So anytime that uh, one of the uh, film critics or entertainment writers or whatever would either you know, mention the Elgin or do a, you know, a small piece on the Elgin or a feature about the Elgin, this, this would always you know, tr- translate, you know, or if they, you know, if we were showing a newer, a newer film, and there was a, you know, a, a positive review in the Times, the New York Times film critic, whoever it was, you could just see, you know, the numbers of people that would come from that. And if we were yeah. showing something that got a bad review, you know, it was, uh, you'd see the tumble we'd go at the theater. Yeah. That, yeah. That. Well, and also, uh, so people can understand. This was, even though maybe it didn't work out that way, uh, a commercial for-profit venture. We had to depend on the kindness of reviewers and the limited uh, ad budget we had. And one thing which even to this day still works wonders, and that's the word of mouth of those people that see something. Yep. And you know that was the, the, the success of the midnight show, the online show, which I've touched upon before, was really that phenomenon of people discovering it and then through word of mouth getting their fr- friends to come and that replicating itself over and over again that that's when you had a you know 
uh, phenomenon of successful midnight show was because people were discovering it and then uh, telling uh, their friends about it. Well, I don't know. I don't think I read this either. So I'll, I'm going through this. We can either listen to it or cut it out. But anyway, here's a, a letter from uh, 1976 written by Frank Rich, who was then uh, a film writer, critic for the New York Post. He went on to be, you know, become a uh, political Stay. columnist you know, with the Times and really become. But he was so here's a he wrote to the, to the Elgin about the Buster Keaton Festival. And he said, I love Keaton to the point of insanity. And I wish that I could say forthwith that I could schedule a Saturday piece about him. The problem is I've already committed to Saturday columns through January. And given the fact that new films by Mazursky, Cassavetes and Scorsese are already scheduled to open in the first 10 days of February, this logjam may continue. But if I possibly can, I'll try to do something I'd really like to. It'd be a great help if you might send me a complete schedule. Just say, Here's hoping there's some way I can help. So some of these people understood what their role was too, or the impact yeah. they would have, that you know, in trying, you know, to to help the theater and get, course, you know, as a film critic or entertainment writer, you know, they had to deal with editors and what was the the, the thing that they needed, you know, to write about at that time. But uh, yeah, and the only thing that I wanted to add to you is, you know, if we were so smart. Why ain't we rich? Uh, well, uh, the result is its own answer. Okay. <laughs> well, sh shall we say uh, adios to our listeners uh, for this episode and let them tune in to the Lone Ranger or the Lone Rangers the next time? Okay, I, I think we can do that, paying attention and just let people know that we would like to remind people to follow us on Twitter at uh, El Elgin Movie on Instagram at Elgin Movie Watchers and on Facebook at Elgin Movie Watchers Podcast and that you could write to us at uh, Elgin Movie Watchers at gmail at gmail.com yes suggestions ideas or whatever and remember that uh, you know through the summer we're kind of like uh, doing one every other week remember to you know tell your friends and get the word out about the Elgin Movie Watchers uh, podcast and uh, I'm Chuck Slatkin and uh, I'm Steve Gould and we'll see you or hear you or you'll hear us on the next episode. There we go. Thank mm -hmm. you.